Bibles, if you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 10. We have this long, ongoing study in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's really important for us to understand the significance of Christ's ministry. The most important information that you'll ever gain is about Jesus Christ, and it's good for us to know about his ministry while he was here on the earth. The New Testament begins by introducing us to the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom, and more importantly, it's about the king of the kingdom. In the sixth chapter, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and he said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The great question that should be asked is, how will Christ's kingdom come upon the earth? That's actually the evangelistic portion of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, God's kingdom comes when the earth is brought into subjection to him. His kingdom comes when men and women recognize that he truly is the king of the kingdom, that he has the right to rule heaven and earth. In verse number 7 of the text that we're going to read today, Jesus said to the apostles, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he told them to preach that because the king had come. The king was here to rule into the hearts of his people. And there were some who recognized it by the miracles that Jesus did. Back in the ninth chapter, there were the blind men that followed Jesus around. And they said, Son of David, have mercy on us. And they knew that Jesus was the one who has the right to rule in his kingdom. Now, in the past few weeks, we've been just doing a brief biographical sketch of the men that Jesus chose to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, these were 12 men. They were believers. They were converted to Christ, and they were commissioned to preach the gospel. Now, today we're going to talk about two of them. We're discussing Matthew and Thomas. And Matthew is a quite obscure disciple. The gospel, of course, that we're reading bears his name. And he was chosen to be an apostle. He was inspired to write this account of Jesus' life. And we have just a very, very brief record of his conversion. It's found here in the gospel of Matthew. It's very, very brief, but it ties into the whole story in just a magnificent way. Now, if you look in uh, Matthew chapter 10, stand with me, please, as we read God's word. We'll read once again the first seven verses. Matthew 10, beginning in verse number 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for bringing us here today. And we ask you, Lord, that you'd open up your word to us and help us to understand and learn something from the word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What types of people does God use to do his work? Now, that's really what we are considering here. 
this is the purpose of taking our time to look into the lives of the apostles. And we found thus far, as we've studied their lives, that God uses the ordinary. God uses people that lack the skills that we might think are necessary. He uses some that the world would think never would amount to very much. And God doesn't choose people because they are stellar, standout performers in the business world. He's not looking for self-made men and women. One of the very common misconceptions about the Bible is the saying that God helps those that help themselves. Grandma might have said that, but the Bible doesn't say it. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. God uses people that cannot help themselves. And that's because when it comes to the spiritual realm, when it comes to doing anything for God, there is no one who is able to do anything for him except God should work through him. So we look at these men, and they're no account, we would think, for the kingdom of God, uh, not until God began to work in their lives. So we, we're studying here the first messengers. That's, that's the first part of this sermon, the first messengers. And this is the list of the 12 disciples, the 12 followers of Jesus. They were 12 learners. In verse number 1, they're called disciples. And in verse number 2, they are now apostles. And that's a word that means to send out, to send forth. And in the New Testament, it means a person that has been sent forth with God's authority. Now, the authorized message that these people preached, these men preached, was the kingdom. And the sign of the authority that they could preach the kingdom was the miracles that they could do. Jesus gave them the ability to heal people from all types of diseases and also to cast devils out of people. So we have the names of the apostles here, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Levius, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. And those names, whenever you see the list in the Bible, they always appear in groups of four, three groups of four, and the same ones are always in the same group. And so you have in the first group, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they're always in that first group. And it's because they were the closest to Jesus. Then the second group is made up of always Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. And they weren't as close to Jesus as the first four. And then you have further out the last group. And this is always James, the son of Alphaeus, Lebius, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. But no matter how close or how far they were from Jesus, I mean, in the intimacy that they had with Jesus, they all were given the same commission. All of them could preach, all of them could heal, all of them could cast out demons. And even though they had the ability to do all of those things, they were still faulty men. Now, six of these we've already discussed. Some of them had faults that were greater than the others. But all of them had to be corrected. Each one had to be trained. Each one had to be outfitted in order to become rock-solid defenders of the faith. Now, always first in the list. And we're going to go through these first six that we've already talked about. Always first in the list is Peter. Peter is the natural-born leader. He was the spokesman for the group. His worst point of failure was when he denied Christ three times right before the crucifixion. But Christ forgave him of that, and then he never denied Christ again. Jesus predicted that Peter would die on a cross, and the tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. Second disciple is Andrew. We've noted that he always brings brings people to Jesus. Uh, He was Peter's brother, 
He labored in Peter's shadow, and that was okay with him. He brought Peter to Jesus, and Peter was the one who became the great preacher. And Andrew was content just to stay back in the shadows and bring people to Christ in a different way. Thirdly, we have James, and he is the wildly passionate apostle. Jesus nicknamed him and his brother John, sons of thunder, and he and Peter and John were the ones who were the closest to Jesus. They were the inner circle. You see them oftentimes, those three, separated out from the other group and spending time with Jesus. Now, James must have been a very fiery preacher because he, he was very zealous for the cause of Christ, and he actually became the first apostle to be martyred for his faith. And that didn't happen long after Jesus was crucified. So he was the first one to die. He preached for a while, but apparently he was so much trouble to the religious establishment and so much trouble to Herod the king that he had him beheaded. Number four is John. John is the apostle of love, and he was very close to Jesus. Probably John was the closest. He understood Christ's love better than the others. But in any case, whether he was the closest or not, we always find that his writings are filled with God's love for the world and God's love for his son, Jesus Christ, and then also Jesus' love for the Father. And John emphasizes very strongly in his writings that we as God's people are to love one another. Fifthly, we have Philip. He's the calculating apostle. He was a little thick-headed at times about Jesus' teachings. Uh, he was slow to recognize deity. I mean, he was um, um, a little bit late in understanding that Jesus was able to do the impossible. And so you find Philip calculating the odds of trying to get things done. And if you don't really understand all of that, I'll just have to refer you back to the last message from last week where we talked about him. Then there is Bartholomew. And Bartholomew, we've called the student of Scripture. He's more familiar to us by the name of Nathaniel. And we find him in John chapter 1. He was the one that was sitting under the fig tree. And Jesus saw him. And he called him an, a, a real Israelite, a man in which there is no hypocrisy. Nathaniel was never slow about recognizing the deity of Jesus Christ. And that's because the very first time that he met Jesus, it was a mind-reading session. Jesus read what was in Bartholomew, in Nathanael's mind. And what came out of that was a great confession of faith because Nathanael said, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. So those are the first six. They were ordinary. Uh, there wasn't anything really special in their backgrounds. They were just typical Galilean men. And Nathaniel was probably the most studious in this group. I mean, he was genuinely interested in the things of the Lord. But there were, if there was someone who was an exact opposite of that, it would be this next man, the next apostle, and that's Matthew. He is the seventh apostle in this list. Now, the, the other apostles, all of them had some proclivity towards religion. Uh, they had been taught in the Jewish religion. They grew up in it, and, and they were interested in it from that respect. But Matthew is different from the others. I mean, if you were to ask the typical Jew, which one of these is the worst one in the group? And they had problems with all of them. The Jews didn't like any of them. If you were to ask them which one is the worst of all, they would say Matthew. Now, everybody would have skipped over Judas Iscariot, and they would have gone straight to Matthew. He was undoubtedly the worst in people's eyes. 
And so in this group, he was the weakest link. Nobody in their right mind would choose a man like Matthew. He was a traitor. He was a secular Jew. He didn't care much for religion. He was the worst liability for a group that's seeking credibility. So this is Matthew, and we've called him the forgiven traitor. Now here, uh, Matthew wrote the gospel of Matthew. Of course, it it bears his name. The gospel bears his name. He's not the one that named it. But he's the one that God used to write these things. Whenever you go to a bookstore and you buy a book, usually they come with a nice dust jacket. And either on the back cover or on the folding panel somewhere, you're going to find maybe a biography of the author. And there'll be some things that are written about him, uh, perhaps his accomplishments. You might find something out about his education. There you would maybe find something about his family and certainly... They list the author's successes. But what you're very unlikely to see on the bio of a book is the author say this, I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I am the worst, despicable person that you could ever meet. I, 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 I'm somebody who is a traitor to my country. I love money, and I, and I love cheating people so much, I love it better than my own life. And we have one verse of Scripture, only one, in the Bible that gives us a description of Matthew, and in effect, that's what Matthew says about himself. It's in verse number 9 of chapter 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Matthew was sitting at the receipt of custom. And those six words sum up Matthew's life before he met Jesus. He was a tax collector. And so that means that he helped the Roman government against his own people. He was a Jew that supported Rome. He collected the tribute that Rome charged the people in order to finance their occupation. Now, if you were to write your bio, the only thing that you said about yourself or would say is not the worst thing that you could think of. You, you would not give the worst characteristic that you have. You try to cover that up. And if you did have to reveal it, what you would do is you'd go on five or six chapters trying to explain why you did what you did, trying to redeem yourself, and then letting everybody know what a really great guy you actually are. But Matthew doesn't do that. He just makes one statement. No apologies, no excuses. There's nothing here but his name in this statement. He sat at the receipt of custom. That means he was a publican, he was a tax collector, he was an extortioner. And the word that's, or the description that's actually given of him here is that he was the worst of the tax collectors. He was so cheap, he had no conscience about sitting there day after day robbing people blind. You see, not only could the publicans, these tax collectors, collect the taxes for Rome, but they could also charge people above and beyond that. And they could take that money and use it for their own purposes. And so Matthew had no qualms about sitting there taking people's money, taking food out of babies' mouths, taking money from poor people that needed to feed their children, needed to give them clothes, put shoes on their feet. And Matthew had no conscience about it all. Sort of like Congress. He just had no conscience about it. Well, he was one of the most hated people that you could find in Israel. Now, Judas was a bad guy, of course. Judas betrayed a friend. But Judas was sneaky and underhanded. He worked behind the scenes to do what he did. Matthew was far more obvious. 
He had the title. He had a position. He hung out a sign every single day that said, I am going to rob you blind. And we think, well, why doesn't Matthew say more about himself? Why doesn't he defend himself? Why don't we have all those extra chapters that tell us what Matthew did after he became a Christian? Why doesn't it tell us uh, uh, all the great things that he did? Why doesn't it tell us how he changed his ways? Well, there's one great purpose for Matthew writing the way that he did, and he was interested in only one thing, and that is that Jesus can forgive the greatest sinner that ever lived. And Matthew believed that about himself. He believed he was the worst sinner that there was. He was the greatest sinner. The Apostle Paul, as you know, wrote later, I am the chief of sinners. But Matthew would dispute that. And, and Matthew and Paul would, would slug it out for the title of the worst sinner. And in the eyes of the people, Matthew would win that title. Now, I want you to look at the beginning of the ninth chapter to get the context of that brief statement that Matthew makes about himself. The first part of chapter 9 is about a man that was paralyzed, and he was brought to Jesus for healing. Now, in the other gospel accounts where this same incident is recorded, we learn some extra things about this, that this man was let down through the roof in the place where Jesus was. Now, there were too many people that had gathered there. People were crowding around the door so that it was impossible for anyone to get into the house where Jesus was. And so four friends took this paralyzed man, and they put him on a stretcher. They took him up on the roof, and they began to tear the roof apart. And with debris and dust falling down into the room, they let that man down with ropes right into the presence of Jesus. Now, the most important part of this section is that Jesus looked at this man and he said, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And that statement set off a firestorm of protest among the scribes and the Pharisees. You know why? Because with that statement, Jesus said, I am God. I have the power to forgive sins. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they protested against it. They said, This man speaks blasphemy. But the ability of Jesus to heal that man showed that he had the power of God. He's not a blasphemer. If he was, he'd never been able to heal the man. Now notice in verse number 4 in Matthew 9, it says, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? Now, they they weren't saying these things out loud. Jesus was reading their minds. Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And so Jesus said, Here's how you will know that I can forgive sins. This man is going to get up and walk out of here. Now friends, here we find the purpose for the inclusion of this story. Matthew leaves out many of the other details that the other writers include. Because he focuses on the main part that he wants to emphasize. And his focus is on the ability of Jesus to forgive sins. Then we go further down to verse number 9. And and there Matthew adds that unflattering personal notation about himself. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So Matthew says, Jesus can forgive sins. He forgave a paralyzed man. But if you want to know the extent of sin that Jesus can forgive, Jesus is able to forgive the worst of the worst. 
He forgave me. He forgave the greatest sinner in Israel. He forgave me. And if Jesus can forgive me, he can forgive anybody. And that's why Matthew includes this story. That's the purpose. And if not for that, Matthew probably would have skipped over any mention of this, probably any mention of his name, and let it all go. But here's something that needs to be told. Jesus takes care of all sin. Jesus can forgive people of all sin, even the worst ones that you can imagine. Now, you have to marvel at Matthew's character after Jesus saved him because he could have left it out. He he could have saved all the embarrassment, perhaps, that this caused him. But he told it because Jesus had to be exalted as God, the one who forgives the sins of any person. And that news was so great that Matthew had to share it with others. And so what Matthew did was he invited his friends to come and hear Jesus. Well, a question probably comes to our mind is, well, if this guy is so hated, who are his friends? The Jews hate you and won't have anything to do with you. And Rome only puts up with you as a necessary evil to get their taxes. If they don't like you either, who are your friends? Well, the only friends Matthew could have had were those that were just like him. So he went and he invited other tax collectors. He invited other low-down, filthy sinners to come and to hear Jesus. He wanted those people to be forgiven too. And so this hard-hearted cheat, the man who didn't care about people, became very soft-hearted with compassion. And here, I think, is another interesting point for edification. I said earlier that Matthew was the weakest link for the credibility of the group. So if you were going to choose someone to, to preach the gospel, and if Jesus hung around these kinds of people, then the obvious conclusion must be that Jesus is just like them. Jesus hangs around sinners because he's a sinner. Birds of a feather flock together, so he can't really be Christ. So how do you overcome that objection? Well, Jesus did. And the truth of it is that people that said these things, people that protested against it, never stopped to evaluate their own sins. They thought, you know something, we're pretty good people. And the real truth of the matter is that none of us has anything to offer God. We are all vile sinners in God's eyes. All of us have offended the holy God. We're not one bit closer to God because we never robbed a bank or never kidnapped any kids. The gap between us and God is so wide that there's nobody but Jesus Christ that can bridge it. You understand this, that if you you could get to heaven by your own morality by doing certain good things, if you could get to heaven by saying a rosary, or you could get to heaven by going over there and jumping ahead first into the tank, then Jesus never would have had to die. There's no necessity for it. Jesus did have to die, though, because it's impossible for any person to ever get to heaven by anything that they do. Our morality does not count with God. And so Jesus had to come and die to pay for our sins. He had to come and satisfy God's justice for sin because there's not one of us that can ever do it. Not one of us is any better than Matthew. All of us are vile sinners. He was a vile sinner. We are. Matthew needed to be forgiven, and we need to be forgiven. And the truth that you need to know, Jesus is the only one that can forgive your sins. And if you don't fit that bill, and if you think that you're not in that group, then Jesus is never going to call you. Jesus is never going to use you. You have to be forgiven of all sins, and so you must repent and believe that Jesus died to save you from all of them. And so Matthew is the forgiven traitor. 
His commission is the same as the others. He was, an, he was an apostle. He was entrusted to give the gospel of the kingdom to lost, dying sinners. So God used a forgiven traitor to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, he may have failed in Israel, but he was faithful in God's kingdom. Well, we move on then to the last apostle in the second group of four. And this is Thomas. And Thomas is the apostle that never gets a fair shake. And that might be an odd way of introducing him, but he's a guy that never gets a fair evaluation. If I were to ask you, tell me something about Thomas. 99% of you would say, Thomas is the doubter. Thomas is the one who did not or doubted that Jesus arose from the dead. Now, my purpose in these studies is to give you some information about these men. Uh, most people don't think very much about them. Uh, there isn't very much information about some of them. But what information that we're given, there's usually a key story. There's usually some element of their character that stands out above the rest, and that's why we remember them. Now, Peter is well known because he talked too much. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. James and John were those were hotheads. John cooled off. He became the apostle of love. Andrew, he's the guy that brings people to Jesus. Philip is the one who calculates, and he calculated how much it would cost to feed the 5,000. Nathaniel's a tree hugger. That's what we remember him for. And Matthew is the filthy tax collector. And when we come to Thomas, here's what we remember about him. Thomas is the doubter. And your mom says, don't be a doubting Thomas. And your Sunday school teacher told you, don't be a doubting Thomas. And Thomas never gets a fair shake because if you want to know the truth, there was doubting Peter and there was doubting Andrew. There was doubting James. There was doubting John. And you can go all, right down through the list. All of them had their doubts. Every one of them was confused about Jesus and his death. None of them understood any of that until Jesus appeared after his death. And the difference in Thomas is the mistake that's made by much of the Sunday morning crowd. Much of the same mistake. They forget to go to church on Sunday night. And that's what happened to Thomas. He got caught because he missed going to church on Sunday night. Now, let me start with that. And, and we're going to backtrack to an earlier time in Thomas' life when he, we see a good thing that he did that he never gets credit for. So first, I want you to go to John chapter 20. And this is after the crucifixion. It's three days later. Jesus had risen from the tomb, and the news was out that there is no body in the grave. And so it's already circulating. Somebody has come and stolen the body of Jesus. Mary Magdalene was outside of the tomb, and she was weeping, and Jesus appeared to her. Now, I might say this, by the way, too. Mary Magdalene always gets a bad rap in Scripture, too. Because you hear, Mary Magdalene was the prostitute. Well, there's never anything in Scripture that says that Mary was, Magdalene was a prostitute. It does say that Jesus cast seven devils out of her, but not one word in Scripture ever says that she was a prostitute. So Jesus appeared to her first, and she ran to tell the disciples. Now, if you look at verse 19 in chapter 20, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. 
Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So here's Thomas' mistake, and you can fault him for this if you want. He wasn't in church on Sunday night. Now what you need to do is turn to the person sitting next to you, and you just say, are you going to be here on Sunday night? Don't do that, though, because there'll be so much blushing, it'll get really, really hot in here, so don't do that. But we notice here at the end of verse number 24 that Thomas was called Didymus, and that word means a twin. So either Thomas had a twin brother or he had a twin sister. The name Thomas also means twin. Thomas is the Greek form of the name. Didymus is the, uh, is the, or Thomas rather is the Hebrew form of the name, and Didymus is the Greek form of the name. Both of those mean twin. And so people think, well, Thomas is not really his name. That's just a nickname that's given to him. But we, we know him as Thomas or Didymus in the scripture. So Thomas wasn't there when Christ appeared. He didn't see Christ. He didn't hear him. And so here is his reaction in verse number 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And so there, Thomas has just become doubting Thomas. Now, all of the others, they doubted too at one time or another, but Thomas gets the rap here because of this scripture. Now, keep your finger there in this chapter. We're going to come back to it. And let's go back a few pages in John to chapter 11. And here's where we have the great story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Mary and Martha went to Jesus, and they told him that Lazarus was sick, and they wanted Jesus to come and heal him. Now, the only problem with that is that Lazarus was in Bethany. And Bethany was just over the hill from Jerusalem. And the last time that the disciples were there in Jerusalem, things didn't go very well. Twice, people tried to kill Jesus. And so in chapter 11, Jesus heard Lazarus was sick. And then in verse number 7, Jesus said, Let us go into Judea again. And the objection of the disciples comes in verse number 8. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. And goest thou thither again? So they say, hold on just a minute. No, 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 we can't go back to Jerusalem. Don't you remember that, that there were Jews there that wanted to kill you? And they said, if you go back there, they will kill you for sure. And what they really meant along with that was if we all go back there, they'll kill all of us for sure. But Jesus said, I'm going to Bethany because Lazarus is not only sick, Lazarus is dead. So Jesus was determined to go. It was going to be his last trip anyway. Uh, the cross was next for him. He was determined that he was going to die for the sins of his people. And so in verse number 16, if you look at this, Thomas speaks up. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now people are locked into John chapter 20 and doubting Thomas. And they miss dying Thomas in John chapter 11. Thomas is the first one to speak up. And he said, if he's going to Jerusalem, if he's going back to Judea, let's go with him and I will die for him if necessary. 
Well, some people have thought that John's deep love for Jesus is rivaled only by that of Thomas. Thomas loved Jesus so much that he couldn't bear to live without him. And so if Jesus must die, Thomas said, let them kill me too, because what is life without Jesus? Now, you don't hear very much about this verse when we talk about Thomas. Now, I want you to go a little bit further over to chapter 14. And now we're in the upper room with Jesus and the disciples, and he's instructing them for the last time. This is only hours away from the cross. And in the 14th chapter, Jesus is talking about going away, and he meant by that that he was going to die. And in verse number 3 of John 14, Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Notice who speaks up in verse 5. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? So Thomas immediately objected. Jesus said, you know where I'm going, and you know the way to get there. And Thomas was confused about that. He wanted to make sure that he got this right. If Jesus is going away, then he wants to know where is he going? How are we going to get there? We're going to go with him. I've got to be with him too. That's real commitment. That was what was in Thomas' heart. Love for Jesus. And then comes the result, which is Jesus' great statement of verse number 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Thomas, Jesus said, you know the way because I am the way. I'm the way that leads to eternal life. I'm the way that you get to the Father. Now, if you want to call him Doubting Thomas, maybe there's some room for that, but also call him Velcro Thomas because he wanted to stick with Jesus. Always he wanted to be with Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, Thomas wanted to go too. Now, let's return to the 20th chapter. Thomas said, if you remember... And what we just last read, I must see the print of the nails in his hands, and I must thrust my hand into the place where the spear pierced his side, or I will not believe. Now let me explain that to you. Thomas was very despondent about this. Thomas was very depressed. Jesus promised them, didn't he? John 14, where I'm going, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I'm going to be, there you can be also. Now none of the disciples understood that clearly, So Thomas loved Jesus so much that he was depressed about that because Jesus was gone and he didn't get to go. He wasn't with him. So we get to verse number 26 in John 20. A week has gone by. It's Sunday night again. And Thomas had missed too much already, so he made sure he wasn't going to miss Sunday night service again. So there he is, verse number 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now Thomas loved Jesus, and Jesus knew it. So he appeared again. He materialized in the room, and he spoke directly to Thomas. What was it that Thomas wanted? Thomas wanted evidence. And so Jesus offered him the evidence. He said, reach out your finger, put it into the holes in my hand. Reach out your other hand and put it into my side where the spear went in. And that was enough. 
Thomas saw what he wanted to see, and we have no record that Thomas actually touched Jesus. So what did Thomas say in response to that? Well, if you're a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, you might want to cover your ears right now, because he said, my Lord and my God. In one statement, Thomas shut down 2,000 years of arguments over the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, in church history, heretics have said, Jesus is not God. We hear that today. Jesus is a created being. We hear that today. Jesus is a little God. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses say. Jesus is the brother of Satan. That's what the Mormons say. Jesus was nothing but a human. That's what some say. Jesus was an imposter. But doubting Thomas had no doubt about Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. And so Thomas said, give me a bicycle and give me black pants and a white shirt and a tie and a name tag and I'll get on my bicycle and I'll ride up and downtown all day long in every neighborhood and I'll tell them that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus is God. Now he's the apostle that doesn't get the fair shake because he loved Jesus so much and he made one of the greatest professions of faith that you see in history. And so if you're going to remember Thomas... For doubt, then at least put this beside it. He had great faith also. Now that's all the Bible says about Thomas. There are other books that have been written about him down through history. Maybe some of it's true, probably most of it's untrue. Some of those books said he rode his bicycle all the way to India to preach the gospel there. And ironically, there are some who say that Thomas died by being thrust through with a spear. He's the one who said, put your hand into the place where the spear pierced my side. Jesus said that to him. And according to tradition, Thomas died by being thrust through with a spear. I don't know if that's the way that he died. But I do know this, that he was called. He was commissioned like Peter, like Andrew, like James and John, like Philip and Bartholomew, and yes, even like Matthew. So these are men. They have faults. From Peter on down, every one of them has faults. And the reason they do is because they were human. They were sinners just like you and me. One of them thought that he was the worst of the worst, and he had good reason to think it. And Jesus changed him, and he became a great soul winner. One never gets a fair shake. He made mistakes. But thank God for this. God does not hold our mistakes against us. God doesn't ask you for perfection. God only asks you for a willing heart. God helps those that help themselves. Hardly, folks. God helps people that can't help themselves. That's the exact reason why he comes to you with the gospel, because you can't help yourself. Jesus loved Thomas. And so Thomas said it in his own way. He said, Lord, in this kind of this way, Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus did that. And then he said, my Lord and my God. And I can promise you today, that Jesus will help you if you just say to him, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to look into your word today. We see two great apostles that were called out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. They weren't anything when they were called, but you made them into great men who stood strongly for the faith and preached the word wherever they went. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those kinds of people. We have our faults. None of us is perfect, but 
You'd never ask us to be that way. You just want us to come to you willing to do your work and your will. I pray that you'd speak to some heart today of someone here who doesn't know you as Savior. May they hear that confession that Thomas made, my Lord and my God. And may they understand who Jesus is, that he's the only one who can save us from our sins. And Lord, for Christians here that just haven't lived like they should live, haven't been the testimony they should be, have never really told anybody about Jesus. Make us that kind of people. Like the apostles, we have to carry on the work that they did. So, Lord, speak to our hearts and help us to be ready, even as we read about Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 4 in our Bible reading. May we preach the word, be ready to preach it at all times to people who need to hear the gospel. Bless us as we... Sing today. Be with us, Lord. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.